Well, good morning. You'll notice I'm not Sean. <laughs> um, I wish I was as good looking as he is, but um, this will have to do. Um, pastor Sean, as we prayed earlier, we reminded, and I just want to remind you again, our pastor's resting uh, right now, and uh, I'm glad. Um, but he's, he has served our church faithfully for so many years, and, um, and I'm grateful for Sean, and I'm grateful that he gets some rest. So um, I'm, I'm pleased and excited to preach, uh, to start off our new series in Exodus together. Um, uh, Pastor Allen, Pastor Colin, and myself will be preaching through the beginning part of this while Pastor Sean is on sabbatical, and um, we'll look forward to his return and hearing uh, from him uh, once again. Um, I'm going to be in Exodus 1 this morning, so if you want to turn there, if you're using a pew Bible, if you didn't bring yours with you, there's one in front of you, that's the black one. If you're using a pew Bible, that's going to be page 47, um, near the beginning. But as you're turning there, let me begin. Have you ever been on a blind date? Raise your hand if you've ever been on a blind date before. Just a few of us. I think it's, is it kind of a dying trend? I don't know. I don't hear about it as much anymore. Um... I once, I once went on one of these things, um, obviously before I was married, um, and I was, I was in my mid-twenties, I was in ministry already, and I was single, and so uh, if, uh, probably very few, if any of you sort of have an understanding of what that means, but it's, it's go time, right? <laughs> it's time to find a wife if that's what God's called you to, and it was clear to me that was the case, and so I had good friends that set me up with, on a blind date. Well... The, the funny thing about it, I learned, I've only been on one, the funny thing about a blind date is that you know in the first five minutes if this is going to go anywhere in terms of relationship or a second date, right? And so, um, and you, I mean, it's, it's, it's not necessarily as chauvinistic and materialistic as I just said it. Um, you, 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 there's the conversation sparkling early on, or if it isn't, you know, you can tell pretty quickly. And, and, and that was the case uh, for me. Um, and, and so the, I, I bought flowers. And uh, long story short, um, she was an hour late. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm sitting at the restaurant. And finally, uh, after, an, after about 30, 45 minutes, I just gave up the table, walked out, chucked my flowers in the trash can, and went back to the car. And then um, my friend who set us up calls me and says, oh, no, no, she, I, 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 I text him like she didn't show. And he's like, oh, I, I, and so he calls, her, calls me right back. Like, no, 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 stay there. She's on her way. She uh, apparently got the timing off or whatever. So I get back out of the car. I walk past the trash can, pick the flowers, <laughs> back up out of the trash can. They were in pretty good shape and my table was still available as the Lord would have it. And um, needless to say, that wasn't windy, and that, that was the last uh, date we had. But uh, again, there's this experience when you're there, and you're, 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 you're going on a date with somebody, and, and I hope, by the way, uh, you young folks that are still single and dating, I hope, use, use dating for marriage. Use dating for marriage. That's what it's for. But, um, and that's what I was doing, and so it was clear this wasn't going to go anywhere, so, so um, we, I was kind, we hung out, had dinner, and, and then that was, that was the end of that. Um, but you knew, I knew, I knew that it was pretty obvious, the Lord was making it obvious because I'm not very smart, and I don't make good decisions. 
So the Lord knows better and he just shuts doors in my face. That's pretty much how my relationship with God has worked most of my life. The people of Israel in our chapter today find themselves in a similar situation. This isn't it. And that's going to be something they're going to see and we're going to see as we look at the book of Exodus uh, all the way up to chapter 14. It's obvious this isn't it. So that being said, let's look at Exodus chapter 1 together. Uh, again, we, we, we generally teach from the CSB, so um, that's what I'll be reading from. And again, it's Pew Bible, page uh, 47. I'm going to read God's word, uh, the entire chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Each came with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation eventually died, but the Israelites were fruitful, increased rapidly, multiplied, and became extremely numerous, so that the land was filled with them. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Come, let's deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And when war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, the first whose name was Shipra and the second whose name was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? Midwives said to Pharaoh, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Let's pray. Father, may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you. We pray that as we look to your word, we would trust you. We would listen to it. We would believe it. We would obey it and that we would teach it to others. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So beginning our text, we're both beginning Exodus chapter 1 and beginning the book of Exodus in its entirety. The first thing that I believe the Lord wants us to see in our text is that the Lord has prepared a place to fill. We get this in verse 1. 
These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt. Now the question that should begin our study of Exodus 1 together is, what are they doing in Egypt? Now, if you were reading the Bible cover to cover, if you read from Genesis 1 up to this point, you've met some important characters. But one of the most important characters whose name rarely, if ever, actually appears in Exodus is actually one of the most important characters in Exodus, and that is Abraham. In the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham about a place. As a matter of fact, He's actually, and sometimes I forget this, and if you know this story, you may not know this, you may not have paid attention, I didn't. Abraham, when God promises a promised land, maybe you've heard that phrase before, when God promises the land to him, Abraham is actually already there. In, in Exodus chapter, or sorry, Genesis chapter 15, or sorry, 12, he says, I will give you this land. So, so Abraham knew which land. He knew that it was the land of Canaan. But in, in chapter 15 of Genesis, it says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Abram, his name changed to Abraham after God made this promise to him. The Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So if we read to the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family is now multiplying out, and there are 12 sons. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob, whose name eventually changes to Israel, which will be more familiar to you. And Jacob has 12 sons. The end of Genesis, those 12 sons and their families have moved to Egypt because there was a famine in Canaan. They moved to Egypt because Joseph, who'd been sent there earlier, uh, helped through the dreams that God gave Pharaoh and that Joseph interpreted. Joseph was able to help the Egyptians to store up grain to help them survive the famine, which helped out Egypt. But the ultimate point to move our story along is it brought the people of Israel into Egypt to save them from the famine. So when the people of Israel moved to Egypt, it was a good thing at first. God was providing food for them, okay? But we open the book of Genesis, or the book of Exodus, and we find a Pharaoh who no longer knows Joseph. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So the Lord has prepared a place to fill. There's a concept that I've been made familiar with, and it's, it's called a starter home. Okay, and maybe you maybe you're, are familiar with this idea. Many people, and, and maybe this is less the case now than it once was, but when you, uh, perhaps when you would just get married, if you wanted to buy a home, but obviously for those of us who are young married, well, I'm decreasingly young married, but for those of us who are young and married and, uh, uh, and you, you're, you're buying your first home, you don't have the money uh, in your 20s or 30s often that you'll have in your 40s or 50s to buy the size home that you would love to fill with children if that's what you wanted to do. So frequently when you first get married or maybe you're just getting out of college and you're buying your and you're single and you're just buying your first house or whatever, you tend to buy a smaller home frequently knowing that you probably won't live there forever, especially if you're married and are planning to have children. So you realize that this will last you for a certain length of time and while you're living in it, you're building up equity, which is a good thing, right? And then one day you'll turn around and sell it 
and buy a bigger house for, for your family to live in. So that's, so the whole time you live there, maybe you've, maybe you've had an, you've moved to an area and you've rented for a while and you rent an apartment or a house and you sort of know like this isn't, I'm not gonna live here forever. You might even avoid putting stuff on the walls depending on how long you're planning on staying. I've had that experience before. Uh, frequently you don't paint or anything. You may even, you may even leave stuff in storage, right? Until that such time that you um, get to move into your sort of permanent residence. Well, that's, there, there's this feeling the whole time where you're like, this isn't my home. This isn't where I belong. I don't know where my silverware is. Like, this isn't home. It still smells like cardboard from the boxes, right? This just isn't it. And it's uncomfortable, and it's miserable. But you know, I hope, Perhaps when you moved in that, you had a game plan of where you were going to go next. Maybe you have a house you haven't closed on yet, or maybe uh, you were planning to buy a bigger home down the road. So there's a little bit of a hope, like this is just a temporary situation. Well, that was probably the feeling of the first generation that moved to Egypt. They thought, well, after the famine's over, we'll move back. Well, according to God's prophecy that he gave to Abraham, and according to history, they didn't go home after the famine was over. They stayed for 400 years, for generation after generation after generation until after a certain length of time to where we are now, many of these people saw this as their home. They had sort of moved in, so to speak. But in the midst of this scenario, so that this God has this place that they've not there yet, and some of them remember, many of them don't, uh, God has this place to come um, God has promised a place in Genesis 12, and it's not Egypt. And the question I have for you today is we kind of, as Christians, live in the same scenario. Are you home here? Do you see this place as your home? Now, there's nothing wrong with that to some extent, right? You've got to put stuff on the walls, right? Um, you've got to adjust and live according to the laws of the country you live in, uh, according to the, the, the county and the city that, that you live in, right? You have to do those things, but, but, but are you at home here? Is this the place you live for? Whether your house, is that the place you live for? Is that the place you assume you will spend eternity? Is this building the place you think you will worship for the rest of your life? Or eternity? Would, would the people's scenario, the, the people of Israel's scenario in Exodus remind us we aren't home? This building is not our church's home. We, as Christians, are not primarily citizens of the United States. As much as I love this country, we are primarily citizens of heaven. Would that remind, would we be reminded of that truth um, as we try to live out our lives in obedience to God? This building is not here, by the way, for filling, but for use, right? This isn't our home. Our house isn't our home. Our car isn't our car, right? It all belongs to God. And one day there will be a place that is ours. And one day there will be a place uh, in our story that is, belongs to Israel. So in so much as we do fill this building, like we fill, like the people of Israel fill the nation of Israel, um, it is because God is drawing a people from every nation, including this one. 
So first we see that the Lord has prepared a place to fill. The second thing we see is that the Lord has proliferated a people to fit in it. Verse 5 says the total of, of our text in Exodus 1, the total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. In Exodus 12, 37, when we, when we are starting to head out of the nation, of, of, out of Egypt, the Israelites traveled for... Uh, uh, Exodus 12, 37, the Israelites traveled from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot besides their families. So that by the time we finish this series, and probably basically where we are now in Exodus chapter 1, there's roughly 2 million Israelites. They came with 70, and now there's 2 million of them. So many, in fact, as we'll see, that it's starting to draw attention. God builds a clan of 70 in a nation over 2 million people, despite efforts to stem the tide of their multiplication, as we see in our story. Every, every effort is being made to stop the people of Israel from, Moses, from, from multiplying. So we see in our text, Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. It says there arose a king who didn't know Joseph or his family. He did, that means he didn't know Joseph's story. He didn't know what his family had done for the Egyptians. He had saved Egypt. Egypt would have starved to death too. And in just a few generations, the king has completely forgotten what Joseph did for the, for the nation of Egypt. But God did not. Pharaoh forgot. God did not. But so Pharaoh, because he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know what God has done through Joseph. Pharaoh decides he's going to put an end to the multiplication of the people of Israel. They're beginning to pose a threat, but he can't. I just mowed my yard yesterday. I don't know if anybody has had a difficult time with mowing over the last month or two. Um, me personally, it's been a busy time. I had two weeks of seminars for my doctoral work. It's rained every day I've had to do it, so I was feeding the bees this last month. I don't know about your, you guys. Um, and, and, and that's the funny thing about dandelions, right? If you've ever had to deal with dandelions in your I'm sure you've all have had to deal with dandelions in your yard. Um, you can. Um, you can mow it, and they go away, right, for a minute. What happens? They, they grow back, and they don't just grow back. Like if you had one dandelion in your yard, and you mow it over, you'll have 37,000 dandelions in your yard. And honestly, mowing is the best case scenario because if your kids get a hold of them, and you get dandelions, and you get dandelions, you, you, you can't get rid of them, right? You, you, you try to mow them, and I've even, I've even got a bagger in my mower, and it sucks it into the bag, but guess what? There's dandelions everywhere. You could, you could put down poison, right, to kill it. But it, if, if your yard's anything like mine, then you've got nothing left. It's just dead. All it is is dandelions, right? It, it's like you try to kill them and they multiply. The people of God are just like this. The people of Israel. He, Pharaoh tries to kill them and they just multiply. How annoying must that be to Pharaoh? Genesis 15 and 22, when God's 
reminding Abraham of his promise that he would give him a a land and a people and and that he would be their God and and they would have his favor, it promises that, God makes a promise to Abraham to make his descendants and he gives two uh, metaphors of how many we're talking. He says, as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. So Abraham, remember, as unable to have kids, he's in his 90s, right? Unable to have kids, and God tells him his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Now, when they move, when the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, move to Egypt, there's only 70. Okay, so we haven't reached that level yet. When we get to the end of Exodus, was it 15? There's 2 million. That's a lot of people. But that's not it. We still haven't reached numerous as the stars in the sky. We still haven't reached numerous as the sands on the seashore. Even at two million, we've not gotten there. And that's amazing. At this time in in human history, two million people is a whole bunch of people. We didn't have megacities like we have today. God isn't done multiplying his people even now. God's multiplication strategy isn't birth. Although, it helps. (laughs) Certainly, the more children you have, the more people you can share the gospel with, the more people who can turn from their sins and trust in Christ. And you can build the kingdom that way. Trust me, I'm trying. Um, You can build the kingdom that way, but God's kingdom is first and foremost grown. The people of God multiply first and foremost, not by childbirth, but by faith, by evangelism. By sharing the word of God with those who don't know it or believe it yet. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. There's a whole cloud of witnesses worshiping around the throne of God. And it says that there is one from every tribe, tongue, and nation there. Those aren't Abraham's children by birth. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song called Father Abraham. Does anybody remember that song? I think they probably, my, my daughter knows it, right? So they, they still sing this song to some extent. It makes me nervous. I've always been nervous about that song uh, for, to teach to children because they're not one of them yet. <laughs> uh, it's great for Christians. We are a child of Abraham by faith, but I'm nervous about teaching children that song because I don't want them to see themselves as Christians before they've trusted in Christ. But, um, but anyway, uh, yes, we are, we, are, we are those who have trusted in Christ. God multiplies his people through faith, not through childbirth. And so Pharaoh starts to notice the multiplication. And he sees the people as a threat because of their numbers. He's wrong It is not the number of God's people that he should fear. It is the God of that people that he should fear. So first we see, we saw that the Lord has prepared a place to fill. Secondly, the Lord has proliferated a people to fit. Thirdly, the Lord has picked a pantheon to fight. And that's the story that we'll be looking at in this series is when the Lord goes to war against Pharaoh. 
Pharaoh sees the people of Israel as a threat, and so he begins to try to stem the tide of their multiplication. He tries to prevent them from multiplying, but he doesn't know that they're not the problem. Their God is the problem. If you've ever been camping in this part of the country, uh, not this part, but farther east in the mountains, um, one of the things you need to be sort of aware of is the sort of black bears, right? Um, I don't know if you've ever encountered black bears, but if you've ever, if you've ever been like hiking or backpacking in, in the Smokies and people hear people talk about bears, and then if you ever go out into the Rockies and people talk about bears, and you go back to the Smokies, black bears sort of become an overgrown raccoon compared to grizzlies. Like, it's not, I mean, they're concerned. They could really cause a problem, and I'm not suggesting that you go out there and play with them, but I can tell you that, that, that black bears are somewhat less of a threat than grizzly bears. Uh, a black bear could scratch you up, a grizzly bear will rip your arm off, right? Um, so, but oftentimes we see, if you're out in the Smokies, the first thing you'll see more often than not is this little bear. They're about this big and they're adorable. And they are. They're just basically an overgrown raccoon. They're just going to go through your trash and be a nuisance. But the problem is, you might see that little one, but he's not alone because mama bear is somewhere nearby. And there is a line between mama bear and baby bear that if you stand between mama bear and baby bear, you're going to have a rough weekend from mama bear, right? Because she's going to defend that cub against any uh, threat. Now, a mama bear could kill you. Um, obviously, they're not as much a threat as a grizzly, but I, I still don't think I'd want to be in a fight with a mama bear either. The thing to fear is not the cub, it's the mama the thing to fear for Pharaoh is not the people, it's the God. And we're going to see what God does to Egypt in just a few weeks. In Genesis chapter 3, after the, 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 the world is created, the man and the woman put in the garden, the man and the woman sin. They eat from the tree they weren't supposed to eat from. And God begins to give out curses and there's some really, really bad news in Genesis chapter 3 about the way that the curse affects our work. It affects women's childbirth. It affects all sorts of things. But one of the things it tells us in Genesis 3 is, is when, he, when God is putting this curse on the snake, the one who tempted Adam and Eve, the one we ultimately refer to as Satan, when God puts the curse on the snake, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. By the way, the woman is the one the snake is talking to directly, the one that, that he initially tempted to eat the fruit she wasn't supposed to eat. But God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So throughout the story of the Bible, we ought to be watching who is the descendant of the woman and who is the descendant of the snake because they are battling at all times. We often talk about, about the battle of between good and evil in sort of a comic book sort of way that God and the devil are fighting against one another. No, it plays out in people, the powers and principalities of this world the Bible talks about. And so when God is doing things and the, the seed of the woman that God is helping and aiding and loving and providing for is doing God's will. There will always be a seed of the snake who is standing against God. And interestingly enough, 
the pharaohs of Egypt choose as one of their symbols the snake. It was on, it was on their headdress as they were in their regalia. It shows up in, in their artwork. That is often the way that the pharaoh is identified as a snake. So pharaoh in this story is the seed of the snake in Genesis chapter 3, between which the, the seed of the snake, Pharaoh, and the seed of the woman, Israel, we see this continued fighting. And so, so th this is the beginning of this fight. Pharaoh is threatened, but he doesn't really know how bad it is. It's worse than he thinks it is, because it's not the people, it's the God. The wrath, so how bad... How bad could this get? Well, we'll see in the, in the, in the, in the story of the plagues uh, where God individually takes on all of the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh himself. And we'll see that. I don't want to get ahead and steal that from that text. But um, the, if we want to know ultimately what the wrath of God looks like, we need to look no further than the cross. Our sin that separates us from God, that until we trust in Christ, by the way, we are that seed that stands against God. Pharaoh, we look at it as a bad guy, and we want to identify with the good guys, Israel. But without Christ, in our sin and rebellion, we stand against God like Pharaoh did. And so we look no further than the cross to see God's wrath poured out. Rebellion against God, fighting against God, picking a fight with God, results in death. And that goes for all of us as well. We, need, we, we should never stand against God, and we do so when we sin against him. But for those of you who are in Christ, who are forgiven, who are a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, who are now brought into God's families, we'll see... Um, when we see opposition around us, we can know. When we see persecution around us, we can know that God fights our battles for us. That the world need not fear the church. Those that stand against God need not fear us. We're not a threat. God is a threat. And anyone who stands against him is under his judgment, including yourself and myself. Most importantly, so you have a God who is fighting for you if you're in Christ and is equipping you with what you need. So thirdly, the Lord is pleased to provide for the faithful. We see the story in verse 20 and 21 of the, uh, the Hebrew midwives, right? Who Pharaoh says, whenever you try to uh, help with childbirth, you need to kill all the male children. And they don't do it. Matter of fact, they tell a lie. They tell them, well, at least a half-truth, right? Oh, the, 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 the women are just so vigorous. They just give birth so fast, we just can't get there in time. Which, by the way, may not necessarily be a lie in the sense of it's probably true. That is a legitimate issue um, in, in, among races, different particular races. I, I, I believe, actually, among uh, ethnic Jewish people, that is a normal thing. But that's not the whole truth, right? But as I looked at this text, and we could spend a long time talking about um, the, the, the going back and forth about whether that lie was a good thing or not. If you have any questions, by the way, Pastor Colin has actually written a paper on this 
So he would love to talk to you about this particular topic. So um, I won't spend a lot of time. He's already done it. He's done all the hard work. You talk to him about that. But I believe that this text, more than, more than, than whether or not that's, a, that's a, a, a commendable lie or not, what God is doing in this text is providing for the people who are being faithful to him. Because as we look at our text, the whole thing is about multiplication. The whole story is about how the people of God are growing in numbers. They're having lots of kids. And that's when they become a threat. When Pharaoh stands against them, he stands against them not to kill them all, but to slow down their multiplication. And then he does so with slavery, thinking if I put them under slavery, that maybe they'll stop having kids. They'll be too busy building cities to make kids. Does that work? No. He tries by killing the male children. Does that work? No. No. The whole story in Genesis 1 is about the multiplication of the people of God. And you can't stop it. Pharaoh certainly cannot. And, the, the, and we see in the story of the midwives, when the midwives are in God's will, they're doing what God wants them to do, they're interested in what God wants them to be interested in, God provides for them. And so, if we are doing the things that God has called us to do, if we are interested in the things that God wants us to be interested in, that, that God himself is interested in, and if we ask for things that are within God's best interest to do, he is pleased to give us the things that we need. It's incredible what God does for the Hebrew midwives in this story. Think about it like parents. So um, if your kid asks you for a toy, if you're like me, you're like, oh, you know, well, you can wait till your birthday or wait till Christmas. If your kid wants to help with the chores, you go buy a vacuum on your lunch break, right? Like you provide for your kids when you know it serves your purposes, right? Which is why we keep draining money into hockey gear because when, when my kids say they want to play hockey, I played hockey, I love hockey, I want my kids to play hockey, I'm going to throw all the money I have at it. Tell me I'm not the only parent that does this, okay? When it's in, as a parent, when it's in our best interest, money shows up. The ability to help just shows up and we make it a priority to provide for our children to help them do the things we want them to do. Our God is the same way. When he sees us headed down a road, he wants us to go down. He's going to be like those curling guys that are sweeping the road in front of us so that we can like go along the right path. God has an interest in us doing his will and he's going to equip us to do it. What an encouragement that is. And the people, and the, the, the Hebrew midwives so, so not only does God equip them to not kill the babies and not get in trouble for it, by the way. I mean, why didn't Pharaoh just kill them? I don't know why he didn't. It would totally be within his power and it would make total sense for him to do it. I don't know why he didn't. But God not only helps them to live through this experience. Listen to this. Verse 20, so God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very numerous 
Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Do you know what causes a woman to become a midwife more often than not in this culture? The inability to have their own children. These women were probably barren. That's what would cause them to invest themselves in other people's kids. And because of their faithfulness, not only did the people of Israel get to multiply, but they get families. If you've ever struggled with having children or know someone who has, this is incredible news that God provides for the Hebrew midwives because of their faithfulness in helping with the multiplication of the people of Israel. The Lord Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, 21, he tells a story in chapter 25 about ultimately the, the, the moral of the story is if, if, you, if, God, if God gives you a little bit and you're faithful with that little bit, he's much more inclined to give you more. God gives you uh, maybe perhaps resources and you're faithful with those resources then frequently God's inclined to give you more resources. If you, if you lack skill, if, you, if God gives you a little skill and you use it for his glory, he's inclined to give you more skill. This, it's not a one-to-one. It's not always going to happen because God's will is sometimes a mystery to us. But that's a general principle. If you're faithful in little, God knows you will be faithful with much. And, and so the, people, the, the Hebrew midwives, in very much the same way, they're faithful in their job and God gives them um, what they desire, and what, he, what they need. Many of us, and, I, and if I feel like in this season more than maybe in any other season in my, my ministry, where I have friends that are struggling, they're either, they either are out of work, they're unemployed, and they're trying to find a job, or they have a job, and they, they just aren't fulfilled in it, it's not, it's not enough money, it's, not just the, it's just not where they belong, or at least that, they feel that way. I feel like I've got more friends right now that are in that situation now than maybe ever before. And it could have something to do with COVID. I don't know, and I'm not even going to speculate why that is. But it is. And let me challenge you. If, you're, if, you're, if your resources are thin, if you're in a situation, perhaps a job that's just not fulfilling to you, let me encourage you. Be faithful. Be faithful with little. The money's not there. Be faithful with little. If, if, the, if, the, if the job is not what you wish it would be, if your family is not where you think it should be, if your life is not where you think it should be, be faithful where you are. The, the Hebrew midwives were faithful. By, and by faithful, what I mean by that is seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Seeking God's will and, and not just God's will for your life, right? Because I can see you hear that and you think, well, God's will is for me to have a better job than this. I'm just more miserable than I was to start with. That's not what I mean. I mean a will that's bigger than you. Joining God's kingdom work, being faithful in God's kingdom work. One way perhaps might that be to, to try to, to, to give even a tiny little bit that you'll be faithful with your resources in God's kingdom work. Perhaps that means volunteering, with extra time. Using your time as a resource 
for God's kingdom work, you will find he will provide for your needs. Perhaps for many of us, it's this gospel to every home, right? If we're faithful in that time to go, maybe you feel inadequate for that, to share the gospel from door to door. Be faithful to go. I will stick you with somebody, maybe myself, who knows, who's confident and can show you the right things to say. But if you are faithful in little, God will, will, knows then that you will be faithful with much and very well may provide the things that you need, as he did for the Hebrew midwives. But the point of this entire text, as we draw to a close, is that God is multiplying a people. And he's doing it through miraculous ways, and he always has. In fact, today, the church is growing the fastest where persecution is the highest. The church is blowing up in Asia and North Africa and faster than it ever has because the God, God is preserving a people, multiplying a people, even during opposition. So do you think that your inadequacies as an evangelist are going to keep God from multiplying his people? No. You're not going to be able to screw that up. The Lord is sovereign and is interested in people hearing the gospel. So if you're faithful to go, he will be faithful to give you the words you need. If, if you... If you you know, if you want to do great things for God, if you want to do the things that God wants you to do, he's going to give you what you need. So God, you cannot stop the multiplication of God's people. He's going to do it. So if we join his purposes, set ourselves to seek first the kingdom of God, the growing multiplication people of God, and we do, and we give our lives to this purpose, whether that's in going, giving, or praying, God's going to bless our socks off. Bless our socks off like he did for the Hebrew midwives. So might we always, in everything, be faithful with what God has given us, join him in his work, and let's go tell everybody about Jesus, amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the way that you provide for your people. Lord, I pray that you would um, motivate us in all that we do to, um, to join you in your work, and to trust you to provide all that we need. And we will bless you and praise you for it. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.